We're going to take a little bit of a break from where we've been in Matthew, but keep your finger in Isaiah 53 and look at where we've been in Matthew. Uh, We've been at Matthew chapter 26, and um, we're about to hit the place where Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and prays. You remember what happens when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember he takes his three closest friends among the 12 disciples. He takes Peter and James and John. Remember, he says to them, if you look there, you'll see, uh, he says, he, it says that he, was, he began to be grieved and di- distressed, and he said to them, the three, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Then do you remember what they did? They fell asleep. And so then he goes back to them and says again, help me. And then what do they do? They fall asleep again. So then he goes back. Right. And then finally, he comes to his disciples and says to them, are you still sleeping? Verse 45 and resting. Behold, the hour is at hand and the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. You look at the heading for the next section. It says Jesus betrayal and arrest. The next heading, Jesus before Caiaphas, the religious leader. He's being tried. Then Peter's denial Peter's denials, plural, then Judas's remorse, and then Jesus before Pilate, and then what? Jesus is mocked, and then the crucifixion, and then Jesus is buried. Now, listen to this. Um, Matthew Henry says, It was not only his last scene, referring to Jesus, he says, It was not only his last scene that was tragic, But his whole life was not only mean, humble, but miserable. If you've you've gone to plays or watched movies, you know that there are movies and plays where you get set up and you know what's coming. There's a little uh, hint in the movie or in the play fairly early on that somebody's going to die. And so you steal yourself for what's coming. You know he's going to die, right? But you don't get the death until the end. And that's often how we approach the story of Jesus. We think of Jesus as having a tragic end, but the rest of it was victorious. And we need to come to our text this morning realizing that Christmas, the beginning, was tragic. The middle was tragic. The ministry was tragic. And then the death was tragic. As a pastor, you're often frustrated with how popular Easter is when you show up at Good Friday service and there's no one there. You know, you've heard of Christians who are Christmas and Easter Christians. In other words, there are a lot of people that go to church just at Christmas and Easter and don't go the rest of the time. And what we have to see at the very beginning of our text this morning is that It was not only Jesus' last scene that was tragic, but his whole life was so. Not only humble, but miserable, says Matthew Henry. If I were to ask you who the hero of Christmas is, who would you say? Now, if you're a woman and you've had a child, you would say Mary, right? And Mary was a hero. Mary was unbelievably humiliated by what happened to her. Um, it It was not a coup for somebody to get pregnant who wasn't married. 
And Joseph was not impressed. Joseph almost divorced her and needed an angel to tell him not to do it. Um, And Mary started out poor anyhow. So Mary could be a hero, but we all know that Mary is not at the center of Christmas, right? So who is the hero? Well, is it Joseph? Joseph was a stand-up dude. He took it like a man and provided fatherhood and husbandry to his wife and provided, protected. It's not the oxen, and it's certainly not the innkeeper that's the hero of Christmas. It's not the shepherds. And it's not Caesar Augustus. He's a footnote and one in four-point font. So who is the hero of Christmas? Go ahead, tell me. Come on, say it. So who is it? Jesus. Jesus is the reason for the season, right? You know who our hero of Christmas is? It's Santa Claus. Have you realized that? Have you realized the degree to which Santa Claus now owns the holiday? You better watch out. You better not shout. You better not cry. I'm telling you why. Jesus Christ is coming to town. It doesn't work, does it? (laughs) He sees you. Now, in what way does Santa Claus differ from Jesus Christ? How is he different? One difference really sticks out to me, and that is that if you look at Santa Claus, the thing that you notice besides the white whiskers is that he has smiley lines on his face. He is jolly. If you could see Jesus, what would he look like? Would he have smiley lines on his face? Jesus is the hero of Christmas. And if we go to the end of the Gospel of Matthew and we see this terribly tragic end, where even among the twelve that he spent three years living with, sleeping with, um, and you think of the bonding that went on there, you think of the bonding that goes on with your family when you go camping with them, when you go on vacation, you can't escape them, you're together every single minute of every day, and always the stories are filled with nightmares. The car breaks down, the father loses his temper, the baby doesn't stop crying, it rains on the canoe trip. Those are the times that bond your hearts most. And so here Jesus is with the 12 disciples for three years, they have no place to lay their head. They live off charity, rich people support them. And then at the end of that time, what happens? Well, one of those people then betrays Jesus, Judas. One of the twelve, he loses. All right? Judas goes to the religious leaders and says, I'll betray him for silver. And we have a tendency to look at the end. He's tried, he's mocked, he's scorned, he's crucified. And we say, well, yeah, you have to have that at the end, or I'm not saved, because we're saved through his death, not through his life, right? 
And then we paint a rose-colored patina over all the rest of his life, acting as if the rest of his life was happy. And there's nothing that's more indicative of this, and I'll show it to you later. The men that serve us will show it to you. There's nothing more indicative of this than the pictures of Jesus that we have. But what we see in the Old Testament is that, that God's prophets tell us that Jesus' entire life is going to be a life of suffering and shame and humiliation. So let's read Isaiah 53. Think of Isaiah 53 as being Isaiah's gospel as what we've been studying is Matthew's gospel. We have here the good news of Jesus in the Old Testament. And what is the good news? This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Who has believed our message? I'm this morning reading from the New International Version. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here is the gospel of Isaiah. And looking at our Lord Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, and his death, Looking through our Lord Jesus Christ to this chapter in Isaiah, it's hard to imagine how it is that any Jewish person could not believe in Jesus Christ. Seeing such a clear presentation of the birth and life and death of our Lord, 
presented here in the Old Testament, how clearly Jesus fulfills every one of these verses. So we look at, we look at this text, and we start with verse 1, and we see the hero of Christmas. It says right at the beginning, who has believed our message? Now, this is a question that the answer, everybody knows. That's why you ask the question, who has believed the message? And the answer is, and right at the beginning, we know whether or not you know Jesus. Because if you don't know Jesus, you'll say, everyone, the whole world has believed the message because the whole world is Christian. But if you know Jesus Christ and you hear the question, you know the answer is what? No one. Who has believed the message? In other words, nobody has believed the message. The answer is clear. And right there, we begin to see who Jesus really is. Jesus is not someone who, if I will just wear a tie and preach in such a way as to stay behind the pulpit and to be safe and impress you with my erudition, And use hairspray. And never, ever say anything that would scandalize your mother when she comes to visit you at school. I think I probably caused you some pain, dear brother, and I'm sorry. (laughs) Then, Then what? Then they'll believe the message. In other words, if you didn't sin at work and then witness to your co-worker, then they would believe the message. If you didn't look like a dork, if you got straight A's, if your voice teacher liked you, <laughs> right on. Okay, so what's your name? I love you. I love you. In other words, if you got it right, they would believe the message. Isn't this what we all think about Jesus? If I didn't make such an ass of myself, then they would believe the message. If I wasn't a sinner, if I was rich, if we had rich people here, if our pastor wasn't making an ass of himself, if we sang dignified music, if we were over close to Kirkwood or over on the southeast side of town, you know, if, if, if we had women elders and if our pastor didn't use the word man generically, you know, if nobody ever said sodomy, in other words, get it right and everyone will believe the message. This is what we think. Who has believed the message? Nobody has. Why not? Well, because Tim Bailey's our pastor. Because I'm not the kind of person that would make somebody want to come to Jesus. Look at how I yell at my children. I'm divorced. I'm poor. I'm not a very good bassoon player. But it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And if you're ugly and poor 
and a bad bassoon player, and you lose your temper with your children, you begin to realize who the hero of Christmas is, because that's precisely, now he was not a sinner, but that's precisely the brokenness that characterized Jesus' life. Who has believed our message? And you all answer, no one. Nobody. Nobody's believed. And that's the story of Jesus' life. You go through his preaching. How many people do you think were overjoyed when he said, blessed are those who mourn? I don't think anybody was cheering. Now, why is it that so few have believed? You know what Calvin says about that text? Calvin says, scarcely one in a hundred. Why did he say that? The Bible never says that it's one in a hundred. Well, what the Bible does say is, few there be that find it. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. And few there be that find it. This is what our Lord said. So you say, yeah, but not one in a hundred. And I say, well, probably Calvin was dealing with his observations as a shepherd of souls through his life. He probably saw how many persevered to the end. Have any of you who are older noticed how many fall by the wayside? Have you noticed that? Unbelievable number. Scarcely a week goes by that the elders and pastors aren't dealing with those who have fallen by the wayside. Now, why is it that there are so few? You might want to put it at, you know, one out of 50. Maybe you're really liberal and generous, and you want to put it at one out of 25. Maybe you're incredibly optimistic. You want to put it at one out of 10. Maybe you're really, really Pollyannish, and you want to put it at one out of five. Maybe you're an American evangelical and you want to put it at one out of one out of one out of one. Unless your pastor is Tim Bailey. And you have to hear the gospel from him and then <laughs> you know, it might be one out of three or four. Who has believed our message? Nobody. Nobody believed Jesus. What does the Bible say about Jesus? What the Bible says about Jesus is that nobody believed Jesus. John 12, 37, 38, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. In other words, even seeing the miracles, they didn't believe. So today, we don't have miracles. Now, of course, what we do have is we have all the apparatus of marketing. You know, we have good-looking preachers and crescendos at the end of every song on the Christian radio station. You know, the brass and the sopranos and everything's like triumphant. And we have foxy women and... But the Bible says this. It says, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs... In their presence, they still would not believe in him. Who has believed our message? The answer is no one. Now, why? 
Well, if you're scandalized by the first half, the second half is even more scandalous because it says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed our message? No one. Why not? Because the arm of God has not been revealed to them. Who has believed the message? No one. Why not? Because God has not revealed himself to them. And that's really scandalous because what we believe is that every person deserves a chance. I can't say that without thinking of Jerry Clower's routine about coon hunting. You know, the man with the principles. He always believed in when you got a coon tree, you cut the tree down so that the coon has a sporting chance. Twenty dogs there, but it's strictly the coon's option. He can whoop all, all those dogs and run away. Well, that's the kind of chance, you know, a coon amongst 20 coon dogs, that's about the kind of chance that we think that maybe on the worst possible day people have to believe in Jesus Christ. And once again, what comes into our mind is that if we just present the gospel in an inoffensive way, contextualized, coming from somebody who is, you know, a cheerleader or a football player or Ph.D., uh, wealthy, influential, then they'd believe. And then we hit this verse, and the verse says this. It says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And w- there we see the reason that they do not believe is because God has not revealed his strong arm to them. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, they don't believe because the arm of the Lord has not been revealed to them. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Those who believe the report have had the arm of the Lord revealed. What is the word revealed? The word revealed is a word that says nothing about the person except that somebody did something for them, right? They're passive. It's revealed to them. If something's revealed to you, are you the one that exposed it? No, you're not. It's revealed to you. And so what we see here is a scandalous doctrine that it's God's plan to hide spiritual life from the, ma- the vast majority of people who have ever lived. And you go, that can't be. Why? Well, because you have loved ones who don't know God. Because you have a roommate. Because your old boyfriend. And so you rejigger God. Well, God can't be like this. It must be the most people believe, and it must be that they believe because God's put in every man the innate ability to see spiritual truth and to believe in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, God wouldn't be fair. And so, right here in the first verse, we're rebels. We just hate Scripture. Come on. You know... Open your heart up, open your eyes up, and look at who you are. You don't want to believe that Jesus said, few there be that find it. And you don't want to believe that Jesus said that he taught in parables so that having eyes they would not see, having ears they would not hear, else they would repent. People, God, God is God. The Bible says 
As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts, my ways above your ways. My dad used to say that God is no man's debtor. God does not need us to save his reputation. He doesn't need our doctrine of freedom to save his reputation. He doesn't need Molinism to save his reputation. God is God. And right here at the beginning of this chapter, what it says is, who's believed the report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so we're left without excuse. Last night I was reading... You know, you're supposed to be working on one thing, and then somebody sends you an email, so you go off on the rabbit trail, right? So I went off on the rabbit trail. My dear friend Camila, who was here a couple weeks ago, sent me a link to a man who talks loudly in restaurants and uses big words. Now, he doesn't really. That's just the way I talk about people that are very impressed with themselves and think that they're brain is large. This particular man, his name is, uh, is Greg Boyd. And I had never read any Greg Boyd. He's very much in vogue. He's sort of, sort of the resident theologian for a movement called the Emergent Church. Uh, Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, all those guys. And Greg Boyd has taken Arminianism and has like given it, you know, given it like a jolt that drives it up to a level that nobody's ever conceived of Arminianism before. He is absolutely committed to the free will of man. Now, there is a sense in which man's will is free, but I'm not going to go into the intricacies of it. I'm just going to tell you that Greg Boyd is a man who is doing a whole new thing in our understanding of God and man today, something nobody's ever conceived of before. It's called openness theology, all right? And it's that God's discovering what you and I are going to do. I mean, that's basically a summary of of what it is. And so Greg Boyd is reporting on a meeting of all of the muckety-muck scribes and Pharisees that happened this year. It's called the Evangelical Theological Society. And he was one of the four panel members of a panel that he reported to us uh, was unbelievably well attended. So well attended, people were sitting along the walls on the floor. So this is Greg Boyd telling us who came to the panel that he was going to be on. All right. Now, why am I saying this? Well, because I'm trying to get you with me, that you realize that the pride was just oozing out. And then he reported on the subject. What was the subject? Well, the subject was basically the interface between God's omniscience and man's free will. In other words... Um, how do we deal with God's uh, all-knowingness and man's free will? But, of course, what he's really dealing with, as he reports to us, is he's dealing with the question of what philosophers refer to as theodicy, which is the debate over the goodness of God. So what all these scholars are talking about is how can God know what's going to happen and have suffering and be a good God, right? Isn't this what everything that Rob Bell talks about is about? I mean, you know, you have to dig a little bit, but the emergent church is all about 
accusing God of evil because of the suffering in this world. Right? So, here this man is, and he and all the scholars, all the scribes and Pharisees of our nation, have gathered once a year, and they're having a panel. And there are four positions represented. And he goes on, and he begins to deal with the moderator and his errors. And then he gets into the substance where he and a man named William Wayne Craig are debating the issue of the goodness of God and the presence of suffering. Now, any mother or father who have ever been through a birth know exactly what the question is. If you've been present when your child is born, even if you're not the woman, you're the father, the terrible tragedy of human life is evident. Everything about a birth is, Lucretius says, the wail of the newborn is mingled with the dirge for the dead. Death and life are like that at a birth. All right? And so it's not hard for us to understand how it is that somebody who's a philosopher would want to get involved in discussions about how can we protect the goodness of God when we see the suffering in the world. So he and William Lane Craig begin to go at it, and he describes to us their discussion, right? And they begin to use words that are unbelievably large and sophisticated in constructions that are unbelievably obtuse. I mean, I couldn't understand it. And I kept reading it over and over again. Okay, what are they saying? Couldn't understand it. And I thought to myself, this is philosophy. This is philosophy. I don't mind philosophers wasting their life on philosophy. But I do object to men who are preparing pastors. And that's who most of these men were. Most of these men are seminary professors preparing pastors. And here they are, the most popular panel, maybe in years, according to the man who was in on the panel. And they are using constructions and words that I can't understand. And I'm thinking, what's wrong with this? Well, you don't want to know what's wrong with it. First of all, it's wrong because the Bible says that that, that, that man's wisdom is foolishness to God. But the second thing is, why are they talking about things that the Scriptures are silent about? We're not supposed to know what God hasn't revealed to us. Now you say, well, yeah, but we didn't know how big the universe was from Scripture. And I say, well, in one sense we did. The heavens declare the glory of God. Do you think maybe it might be big? I'm going to go over on this side. <laughs> Maybe Henry David throw, you know, the pond, and you, you'll be far enough away that your laugh won't scare me. <laughs> right on, Josiah. So, number one, it's the wisdom of man, and that's dangerous. The Bible says it is. Number two, there are things being discussed there that haven't been revealed by God, and the Bible says that the secret things belong to God. And the things revealed to us. All right. But then I realized that there's a third problem. And the third problem is there's no mention of the fall. There's no mention of the fall. 
And the simplest student in colonial America started his primer, started his primer with the word A. And A was illustrated to every colonial New England child with this statement, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. The minute you see the fall of Adam, you have no problem with death and suffering. Because you realize, as I did this morning, and I hope you did, that when you get up and you go outside on a morning like this and you see the brilliant sunshine shining on the backs of all the homes off Tap Road when you're coming up to the roundabout, and every home is having the warmth of a new day's sun, you realize that God is giving us something that we don't deserve. And then you get out here and you see the hoarfrost on our whole property, and you look at that hoarfrost and the sun coming and the brilliance of it, the beauty of it, and you think, I don't deserve this. And then you come in and there are people here that love you, and you think, I don't deserve this. In other words, if your orientation is under the fall of Adam, And you realize, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And you know that God promised death to those, to Adam, if he sinned. Then you're amazed to find yourself alive today. You're amazed that your body ever plays a full soccer game without getting hurt. You're amazed that there are some days that you don't lose your temper with your baby. You're amazed that you have a husband that loves you because you're completely unlovable. And then when you hit death, instead of being an American who spent your entire life doing what? Escaping suffering. I mean, when I was young, there were reasons to know that in Adam's fall we sinned all because we had things called records. And if you used a record on a turntable and didn't have a new needle and touched it with your fingers, the next time the quality of life would be less. And after a while, it was scratched. But today, if you have a scratch on your MP3 file, duplicate it. You know, everything about your life is smooth. Everything. You know, when I was a kid, you had to scrape the rear window of your car. But today you got little wires. And so when an American hits the end of life and they begin to not be able to escape suffering, there's no button on their computer that they can push that will bring back their veins. Then what do they do? Steadily increasing morphine drip and give me death. And so your parents have told you that when they get to that point, you all know what that point is, that they don't want to be a burden. And you know what it means to not be a burden. It means you're not going to have to change their diaper. They changed yours. But you, and if we can do soon, children without diapers will do it. And every single thing we do to take suffering away from us, every single thing we do ends up causing us to understand less. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And we say, everybody believes the report. And we say, and everybody has a choice. Because if they didn't have a choice, God wouldn't be fair. 
I say, have you ever heard of the fall? Do you realize that in Adam's fall we sinned all? Do you really think you deserve anything good from God's hand? Yes, you deserve kindness from me, and I fail at that. Yes, you deserve love from your parents. Yes, you deserve your parents not to be divorced, right? I mean, there are certain things we deserve, but we, none of us can go to God and accuse him ever on any level for any of the suffering of our lives. One of the things that as we've gotten older, my wife and I have had to deal a lot with is the issue of adoption. There's a whole literature developing about all of the pains and sufferings of adopted children, right? So yesterday I'm reading an adopted, I'm writing an adopted child. The adopted child, and it's not in this church, you, you don't know him. Well, most of you don't. And so I'm writing an adopted child, and I'm trying to tell her to stop being unbelievably wicked to her parents in what she says to them. And I'm putting myself in her mind and I'm thinking, well, of course, you know, she has alienation. She has, you know, all these issues because she's adopted. And then I think about my life. And I'm writing her and she knows my life. And, and so I say to her, you know, your adoption is not an excuse for your treating your parents like this. In, in the same way that my brother's dying when I'm growing up and my father leaving home and being on the road because he couldn't handle the emotional weight of our family after losing his third son is no excuse for me. Rwandans, Tutsis, they have no excuse. Jews have no excuse. Every man is silent before God since Adam. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. We deserve instant death from the hand of a holy God who said our federal head is Adam and we're in him and the minute he took the fruit and ate, he defied God and every descendant under him is under a death sentence because of that. That's all. And the minute you've got that in your brain, you stop wasting your life going to a psychiatrist and complaining that your mama or your dad or your, or your husband doesn't love you. No, he doesn't love you. God loves you. And God doesn't owe you a husband that loves you. He doesn't owe you parents that don't get divorced. He doesn't owe you having your natural-born mother. He doesn't owe me having my brothers live. I prayed for probably months after my first brother died. He was five, I was four. And I prayed for months that he would be raised from the dead in family devotions. Can you imagine my parents sitting there listening to that prayer? Every night, let's not have the devotions tonight, Joe, because we're going to have to hear Tim, right? And God didn't owe me my brother being raised from the dead. God doesn't owe you anything. God does not owe Greg Boyd an explanation for how he can know everything and there's suffering in the world. Who has believed the message? Nobody has. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Very, very few. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. In other words, Jesus Christ 
as he grew, was not like a climbing rose bush, and it was not like he was not like an oak tree or a sapling. It wasn't a taproot. He wasn't in black soil, and it didn't have moisture in it. It was a tender shoot. You may brush against it and it may die. That's Jesus. And a root out of dry ground. All right? Verse 2, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. You know what that picture is? That picture is heresy. Everything about that picture is heresy. Because that picture is attractive. And the Bible explicitly says what? It says nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. That picture has been written or drawn to make you attracted to Jesus. That picture is a lie. If you saw Jesus today, he would be the hunchback of Notre Dame. He would be a pariah. He'd have a goiter sticking halfway to the moon out of the side of his neck. He would have terrible acne. He'd have bad breath. He'd be short. He'd be nearsighted. He'd be deaf. And he wouldn't be able to speak loudly. In other words, draw for yourself a man that you would be repulsed by, and that's the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Bible really doesn't say what we want it to say, does it? Because this is our image of Jesus, and yet it says right here, he had no, he, he had no beauty, no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing that we would find attractive, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. What's the dude's name, Florida, Bebo, or what, what's his name? The quarterback? Tebow. Isn't it wonderful to have a Christian who's attractive? If you don't know, he's probably, you know, one of the top five football players in colleges in the country today. Probably a lot of people would say the number one. You know, he's, I don't think anybody doubts he'll be the number one draft choice when he comes up, right? Don't you think? Probably. And he's a Christian, an unbelievably godly Christian. I mean, he really is the real deal. And it's such a relief because finally what we've always wanted to be true is true. You know, the most attractive guy in sports, you know, uh, amateur sports today, you know. And he gives us such dignity. He reminds us what Jesus was like. And what the Bible says about Jesus is, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He didn't win the Heisman Trophy. Then it says in verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. You know that the Bible never indicates that Jesus laughed. Do I think he laughed? Yes, I do believe he laughed. 
Why doesn't the Bible tell us he left? Well, because it's not important. Why isn't it important? Well, because what you need to know, the Bible does tell us. You know, the shortest verse in the Bible is in Luke, and it says simply this, Jesus wept. So apparently it's important that you know that Jesus was a man of sorrows, but not that he had laughter. Have you noticed recently how trivial our world is? How completely, pathetically superficial our world is? The best place to see this is at funerals. Because you know what you hear again and again and again at funerals about every man who dies? You know what it is? What they say is he had a great sense of humor. It's unbelievable. And yet what we need to know about Jesus is that he was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And so he wasn't pretty. He was a man of sorrows. And so what did we do? Well, like one from whom, verse 3, men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So we hid our faces. Have you ever hidden your face? Have you ever been fully embarrassed? If you haven't, come spend some time with me. You will be. (laughs) My son-in-law is roaring. I remember a day I was completely fully embarrassed. There was a young man in our church named Adam Spady who invited me to go with him to a meeting at the hospital in the auditorium. And it was a meeting where they had an ethicist. Now, any time, you know, Samuel Johnson said, the louder he talked of his honor, the quicker I counted my spoons. It was in a day when people who were thieves would steal the silver spoons from the table. So he's saying, if some guy talks about how honest he is at my dinner table, I'm going to count the spoons before I let him leave. Well, today, if he's an ethicist, run. Because the one thing you know is he's not ethical. Because ethicists are men that you pay to come up with sophisticated ways of justifying wickedness. And sure enough, this ethicist from Indiana University, your tax dollars at work, was in that auditorium explaining the best way to get the baby boomers to kick off earlier. And all the doctors and the nurses and everybody from the hospital was there being having explained to them how About 30%, give or take 10%, I don't know. How much is it? 30% in the last 30 days of life, Adam? How much is it? Okay, 50% of healthcare dollars are spent in the last 30 days of life. So if the minute you see that this person is older and that's permeable, I mean, you could be 65, it could be 85. I just read last night an email account of how my wife's grandmother was just moved from California to Texas to start a new life in a new home at the age of 104. Wacko. I hope she's happy. So who knows, 65, 75, 85, 95, 105. We're not sure exactly when they'll do this, but when the doctors look at us and the nurses look at us and the ethicists look at us and realize that we're at a point in life where it's likely those 30 days will begin, what you do is give them an increasing morphine drip or, you know, you you just slightly abandon them, slightly don't look carefully, right? 
And what will happen is they'll die a little bit earlier, which will save everybody a ton of money when baby boomers begin to die. And so this guy's going on and on about how we can do this, but he's an ethicist, so he uses very sophisticated, smooth language to talk about death being our friend, the natural end, that people with dignity embrace it. And, of course, the Bible says it's an enemy. It's our last enemy. But, of course, in order to get people to die, you have to sell them a bill of goods that it's your friend, that it's natural, that it's to be embraced, because then that will allow them to give you the morphine drip, and then you'll have a right to kill yourself because you don't want to suffer. And this is what Adam, as a man in medical school, is listening to. And he knows how his bread is buttered. He knows that if he is going to be a successful doctor, that he is going to live in such a way as to go along with this because it's going to save everybody money. And there I am, invited to be with Adam, listening to this. So the guy gets done, and they take questions. And, of course, everybody's in lockstep with him, you know. Oh, you glorious man, you wise ethicist, you, you gift to mankind, on and on. And then I cringe because Adam's hand has gone up. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, this is just great, you know. So I think he had to hold it up for a while, and then they finally called on him. When they called on him, Adam said, Well, as a Christian physician, I believe that at the end of life, the thing that's most important is that people have an opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ and to repent of their sins and to believe in Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, I was fully embarrassed. It was as if somebody had taken off his underwear. Because we all know what it means to have separation of church and state. It means that Adam shuts up. So I disciplined myself to love this man next to me and to be proud of him. But let me tell you, it was not easy. You ever been really embarrassed? Everywhere the disciples went, that's how they felt being with Jesus. Jesus never took the chances to be successful. Never. He steadily shot himself in the foot in such a way that the one who was his disciple next to him was completely embarrassed by him. He was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, and we hid our faces from him. You and I. That's me. He was despised and rejected a man, and we esteemed him not. We didn't respect him. This is Jesus. This is the hero of Christmas. And as I prepared this sermon, there was a piece of music that kept going through my mind. And I asked a couple of people here if they knew it so that they could sing it for us this morning. And these are our musicians. But they didn't know it. And so here's a plug. Buy a good copy of Handel's Messiah. If you buy nothing else this Christmas, buy a good copy of Handel's Messiah because an unbelievable amount of Scripture will be a part of your memory bank. Now, how could anybody 
Hear Isaiah 53 without hearing the music. And what was Jesus like? Go ahead. Behold and see. If there be any sorrow like unto his, behold, our Lord. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. In other words, when Jesus went to the cross, it was our sin and our sorrows that he was bearing. He was perfect. There was no deceit in his mouth. He didn't answer back when they punished him. Nothing about him deserved punishment. It was our sins. It was our iniquity that he bore. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. In other words, the fall, in Adam's fall we sinned all. The wrath of God is revealed against all mankind because of Adam's fall. That's you and me. And Jesus came and Jesus took upon himself the punishment that you and I deserved. And that's the gospel. And you cannot get to the resurrection. You cannot get to heaven without going through the tragedy of his life, his weakness, his ugliness, his unjust suffering, his oppression. And then if I were to single out a verse in the Old Testament that is my favorite, it would be the next one. You know what it is, right? All we like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We can buy into the first half of the verse, all we like sheep have gone astray. Well, yeah, who's going to say you haven't gone astray? I've gone astray. You've gone astray. We've all gone astray. All of us like sheep have gone astray, right? Sheep go astray. That's what they do. We've all gone astray. 
And then it says what? Each of us has turned his own way. Well, that's a little bit more intense, isn't it? Because instead of just, just buying into the corporate guilt, it's like, I've gone astray, and I've turned to my own way, and you've turned to your own way, and you've turned, and you've turned. Every single one of you has turned to your own way. And then the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that's the gospel. Now, what's the application? Well, would you notice that when it gets to the end, it says, It was the Lord's will, verse 10, to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities, right? So the whole chapter is this overwhelming picture of the humiliation, the brokenness, the oppression, the ugliness, the poverty, the homelessness of Jesus Christ. It's the whole chapter. And then what does it say? The first word of verse 12 should remind you of another text of Scripture which should be among the top five portions of Scripture that you love. The first word of verse 12 is what? Therefore. Now, does that remind you of anything? The first service didn't remind anybody of anything. Does it remind you of anything? There has to be one person here that gets it, right? That's right. That's right. Therefore. Go ahead, Tim. That he, to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus goes through it. He's obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, and we don't want to go through that. We just want to get to the therefore. Therefore, God is highly exalted. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. In other words, there is glory here. There is evangelicalism here. But after the whole chapter is about humiliation and suffering and ugliness and sin. So what's the application of this? The application is that the tragedy of Jesus' life isn't at the end. It's his whole life. And it's not until he's born in humiliation in the poor part of the country to an unwed woman and lives a life of humiliation and suffering and then goes to the cross and dies and then is put in the tomb that God highly exalts him. So what's the application of this to you? Well, the first application, obviously, is repent. Repent. Why should you have a life without suffering? Why should you be a beautiful person? Why are you owed a good job? Why are you owed a happy marriage? Why should you have children if Jesus lived this life? 
get off your high horse and repent. Repent, 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 repent. God doesn't owe me anything. God doesn't owe you anything. God doesn't owe your children anything. If you're spending your life changing diapers, that is a privilege. If you're a woman, stop demanding that God treat you as a man. Embrace the humiliation of being a woman. How can anybody deny that being a woman is humiliating? Save through childbearing. Embrace it because this is to embrace your Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a man and you have a nasty job, embrace it. If you're a paraplegic, if you're sterile, if you're ugly and no one wants to marry you, Repent! Don't demand that God gives you what your heart desires because all of us who are Christians will tell you it's precisely when we embrace our suffering, precisely when we embrace our ugliness, when we say yes to God's discipline, when we say yes to God's denials of the things we want. That's when we see Jesus and that's when our hearts are filled with happiness, with contentment, with peace. So the first application is, repent. Get off your high horse and humble yourself like your Savior. And take on the glory of His calling. It's not embarrassing. It's a privilege. I was privileged to be next to Adam Spadey. Because he at that moment was Jesus Christ. And I have the privilege of having Adam as my friend. If you're a woman and God has given you breasts in a womb, embrace them. If he's made you vulnerable in a way that your husband isn't, to the emotional failures and physical failures and sin of your children, and you just mourn. Embrace it. It's God's gift to you. Jesus bore the sins of the world. Shouldn't a mother have to bear her children's sins? If God has given you a wife who never stops complaining about you being a failure, embrace it because Jesus was a failure. If you're divorced, Embrace it. Not because divorce is a good thing, but neither is being a paraplegic. And neither is being old. But because Jesus bore our griefs. He bore our sorrows. He bore our sins. Here's one other application. Don't try to make this life and the gospel of Jesus Christ into what your sinful heart wants to be. Don't try to change the way I preach. And don't be embarrassed of it. You don't want to get what you want. Because if you get it, you will be one of the many that's on the pathway to hell. 
You know one of the great tragedies of being a muckety-muck? One of the great tragedies is that muckety-mucks are never reminded of who they actually are. They don't have people that are at the same level with them to poke them and to let out the hot air. And so be delighted that God has given you an ugly child. Be delighted that God has given you a stupid son. Be delighted that God has given you a gammy leg. Be delighted about your accidents. Every single thing that you hate in your life, trust that this is a gift from God that conforms you to the image of Jesus Christ. And anytime something good happens to you, knock on wood. I don't really mean that, but you get my point. Be very suspicious of good things and very trusting of bad things in your life. You say, oh, well, this is a cult of masochism. I say, no, it's not a cult of masochism. It's a cult of identifying with our hero, right? It's Jesus. This morning as I was preparing, I was listening to very old Christmas music, and so the doctrine was good, you know. You better watch out. You better not shout, you better not cry, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. That's America. (laughs) Go back to 1611, and here's the Christmas carol. Remember, O thou man, O thou man. Curtis, can you sing that? Come on, I got the words. Come on. Oh, and then we'll be done, Lawrence. I, trust me. Lawrence is going to get up and walk out on me if I'm not, if I don't hurry. My wife said, when is Lawrence going to walk out on you? Just don't do it this week. Give me another chance next week and I'll have Stephen preach. Just the ones that are marked. And there's another one. Sing a few more. Help her 
So that's Christmas. Therefore, what? Repent. That's your gift. The arm of the Lord is revealed to you. You'll repent. And then Jesus Christ, his blood will be yours and you'll be clean. That's the gospel. You look at Jesus and what he suffered... Can't you repent? Why can't you? Why can't I? Let's pray.